Today's reading is Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner you may exact it, but whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow, and you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. If among you one of your brothers should become poor, if any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be the poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this day the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I've heard it said before that um, good artists copy and great artists steal. And so I actually stole that line from the beginning of my sermon uh, last week because I want to make sure always that I'm citing my sources. And so last week I wanted to cite uh, my source for my sermon on images of biblical justice um, and where I got that. But this week we're going to be looking at what scripture has to say about economic justice. And I want to make sure to sort my, cite my sources as well this week. And so the sources uh, that I drew upon largely for the talk this week, besides, of course, uh, Holy Scripture itself, is a book and a talk given by one Timothy Keller, the retired pastor of Redeemer, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan. And so uh, Mike Nelson and I, we do a podcast called Like Trees Walking, and on one of the podcasts that we did uh, recently, we, we, we asked this question, you know, who's your hero? And so um, I said that Tim Keller is my hero in terms of pastoral ministry, someone who has led um, with creativity and intelligence and integrity um, for decades. And, uh, and say a prayer for Tim and his wife, Kathy. Uh, Tim was recently di diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, which is something you don't want to see especially from someone you admire and you think has so much to offer the church still um, in these latter years of his life. And so the book that I'm going to reference uh, is a book that he wrote called Generous Justice, and it's also a talk that he gave on economic justice at the Forum for Justice conference that I mentioned last week in my sermon and that you can get for free at gospelinlife.com. 
Now, ever since uh, the, the killing of George Floyd on May 25th, the nation's attention has been turned towards justice. And so I felt that, that God was calling our church to drink deeply from the well of what the Bible has to say about it. Because truth be told, while I haven't preached a, a series on justice in the Bible before, our, our Western understanding of justice, it, it, it draws so deeply from the Bible itself. And we're going to see that again today. And so the sermon that I preached um, the Sunday after May 25th and then continuing forward, it, it was the beginning of a series that has emerged that, that I'm calling Biblical Justice. And, and we're seeing what Scripture has to say about God's heart for justice, what makes justice possible, and how we as Christians can work for justice. And so far we've looked at uh, a, a biblical definition of justice, biblical images of justice. Matt ha has preached on uh, racial justice and how it's an imperative at this particular moment and given our nation's history. And so today I want us to focus though on what the Bible has to say about economic justice. And, and, and the title I chose for my sermon, it's a bit cheeky and it's, if you haven't looked at your bulletin yet, it, the title of the sermon is, It's the Economy Stupid. And this is a reference, of course, to the famous campaign theme that was formulated by James Carville, the raging Cajun himself, uh, for Bill Clinton's successful 1992 run for the presidency. And so in looking this phrase up on Wikipedia, I actually discovered that it was one of three campaign themes uh, for the Clinton campaign that year. Um, one was, uh, the, the one theme was change versus more of the same. And the other theme, besides, you know, it's the economy stupid, was don't forget healthcare. And I think you can see why it's the economy stupid is the one that has stuck in our collective memory. Because, you know, change versus more of the same sounds like a lamer version of what uh, Barack Obama ran on in 2008. You know, change you can believe in. And, and, and then the other one, don't forget healthcare, is probably something that uh, Bill Clinton wishes he did forget when Hillary Care crashed and burned at the beginning of his first term. But it's the economy, stupid, it, it captured something about the national mood at that moment. You know, whereas uh, the United States uh, was coming off of the sugar high of, of the collapse of the Soviet Union and the fall of communism, and, and then the success of the first Gulf War. And then the country went into this recession, and there was this sense that the country itself was headed in the wrong direction. And so a new generation of leadership had to take the helm. And it's the economy, stupid. It also captures how important pocketbook issues are to most people, right? Is there a sense of shared prosperity and security that goes along with that? Is there a sense that even if we come upon tough times, that the country as a whole is doing well enough that we're going to be able to land on our feet? The economy, it's admittedly an amorphous concept. What are we exactly talking about when we talk about the economy? But just the very notion, it touches on our sense of, of security and prosperity, our desire to lead a fulfilling life, provide for our, our families, and to leave a, a better world filled with more opportunity for our children. And Scripture has much to say about economics. And it does so in terms that are less individualistic than I outlined above. The Bible's economic focus is more on the have-nots than the haves. It's less about individual security and prosperity than the well-being, one might say even the, the shalom of the whole. 
And so I want us to look at three things this morning. First, what does Scripture say about economic justice? And, and second, what, what, what does the Bible say about the sources of poverty? And, and third, what makes that possible? What kind of theolo- theological understanding do we have to have undergirding our, our pursuit of and our work for economic justice? And so um, this is going to be a bit of a tour de force. So, you know, buckle, buckle your safety belts and get ready. Now, before I, I, though, start to unpack a bit our passage from Deuteronomy 15, I do want to say something about the sticky question of how we can apply, you know, Old Testament law to 21st century America. I think that's a fair question that we need to tackle before we dive in. We're talking about a gap between, you know, the events of the Exodus where Deuteronomy is Moses's kind of farewell speeches that he gives to Israel before they enter the promised land to today. We're talking about more than a 3,000 year gap in time. And here's the truth. When we make appeals to Old Testament law, all of us are, are selective when it comes to making those appeals. So if it's immigration, you know, you'll hear, pe- hear people making references to the Levitical commands in Leviticus 19, which comes in the Holiness Code, uh, about our need to care for the stranger and the immigrant. But the same people who do that aren't such biblical litera- literalists when it comes to what Leviticus 19 also has to say about sexual ethics. And so the reverse is true depending on one's political persuasion. And so we need a hermeneutical and interpretive principle that is is more sophisticated than um, the Bible is good when it says something that I already agree with. And when it doesn't say something that I already agree with, well, then, you know, we need to understand the history and the culture and the context, et cetera, et cetera. That is, is just the way for me of pure sophistry. Now, a venerable approach from the church's history of interpretation sees the Mosaic law as divided roughly into three types, the moral, uh, the ceremonial, and the civil. And the church has held that, that the moral law, which is summarized by the Ten Commandments, is still binding on Christians. And the ceremonial law that deals with worship in the temple or tabernacle, that, that since Christ's sacrificial death on the cross, that those laws have been abrogated. His death was the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, thus rendering the temple redundant. And and the civil law, of which the the economic laws of Deuteronomy 15 are a part, were meant for Israel as it was constituted as a, a theocratic confederation of tribes living within a particular territory of, of the promised land. And so the church holds that has held that these laws expired with the state, but they, they still pertain to the uh, general equity, as one Reformation-era catechism put it. And so while the the ceremonial and the civil law in their specifics aren't binding on Christians anymore, certainly the the principles that undergird them still are. For example, we, we don't punish idolatry or adultery with death, but if you were to commit them, you could still get kicked out of the church. We don't keep kosher laws in dealing with food purity, but we still focus on the purity of heart. We don't need to follow the Leviticus, uh, Levitical holy code, holiness code in all of its specifics, but the New Testament still emphasizes holiness and living holy lives. We don't make animal sacrifices, but we offer ourselves as living sacrifices, and worship itself is a sacrifice of praise. And God's laws concerning economic justice still have validity because they are grounded in something that is unchanging, and that is God's character. A few chapters before our our passage this morning in Deuteronomy 10, it says, For the Lord your God is God of God and Lord of lords, 
the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. So these principles are especially binding on the church as we believe, and as we believe they reflect God's heart for all people, we very thoughtfully advocate for them in society and believe that they reflect the common good. You know, why should we care about immigrants? Because God does. And why should we care about the family and, and supporting policies that support children and family formation? Because God does. And why should we care about the poor? Because God does. And so as Christian citizens, our goal should always be to advocate for the common good and be humble and careful about what we advocate for. All right, so now let's look at what uh, the Bible says about economic justice, and let's turn to Deuteronomy 15. Now in verses 4 and 5, Moses makes what's an extraordinary claim. He says, but there will be no poor among you. For the Lord your God will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. So he's saying that if Israel obeys these laws, there will be no poor, none in their midst. But then just a few verses later, it says, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. All right, so on the one hand, we have Moses saying, obey these laws and there will be no poor among you. And then later we have him saying, on the other hand, there will never cease to be poor in the land. Which one is it? What gives? Is, is, is this just the Bible saying two contradictory things within the span of six verses? No, it, it'll actually make sense. See, there's at least five different types of, of laws in the Old Testament that deal with economic justice. Three of which we see are, are explicit in this passage, but the other two are implicit. And, and they really give us a, a helpful framework for understanding what, 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 what Scripture has to say about what economic justice looks like. And so first kind of laws that deal with economic justice in Scripture are, are called laws of release. And these concern debt forgiveness. It says that every seven years, creditors shall release their debtors from what they owe. And so scripture understands that one of the major causes of poverty is indebtedness. In Proverbs, it says that the debtor is a slave to the lender. That's why Dave Ramsey, the uh, Christian financial, personal financial guru, hates debt. Because when you owe someone something, they own a part of you. And so in our passage here, when it talks about slavery, what it's talking about is, is not, you know, modern uh, race-based shadow slavery, but more like what we would call indentured servanthood. If you owed someone money in biblical times and you didn't have the money to pay them back or the resources to pay them back, you could pay them back with your labor. But after six years, no matter what your debt was that you owed, you had to be released. You know, my generation is one that is well acquainted with, with crippling debt, student loan debt in particular. And this is a kind of debt that can't even be canceled if you declare bankruptcy. Debt that follows you even after you die. I mean, admittedly, Amy and I, we still have student loan debt that we're paying off. And Americans, they know what it's like to be drowning in debt. And the poorer you are, the more burdensome debt is because you're riskier to lend to. And so you get higher interest rates, you get more fees, and the more and more debt is not something that is actually like a platform to building a better life, 
but it keeps you trapped in poverty. So those are the first kind of laws, the laws of release that deal with indebtedness. Now, implicit in, in this passage, is talk, in its talk of open-handedness to the poor, is actually a, a second kind of biblical law, and, and that's about uh, tithing. In verse 11, it says, There will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. And so scripture is saying there's always going to be poor people around. So open your hand. And tithing was the practice of giving a tenth of your income to support um, the Levites who had no land. They were the one tribe. They were the priestly tribe who had no land as an inheritance. But in addition to this, every three years there was actually a tithe taken. um, And it comes from the end of Deuteronomy 14. So right before our passage starts. And it talks about collecting a tithe that didn't go to the temple but it was collected to be put in the public storehouses for the poor. Here's what it says, right, literally in the verses right before our passage starts, and, and this comes from Eugene Peterson's translation in the message. It says, at the end of every third year, gather the tithe from all your produce of that year and put it aside in storage. Keep it in reserve for the Levite who won't get any property or inheritance as you will, and for the foreigner, the orphan, and the widow who live in your neighborhood. That way they'll have plenty to eat, and God, your God, will bless you in all your work. So these tithes were a tax that went to support the poor. And our own practice of of tithing in the church, it's derived from passages like this. And the average American Christian, um, maybe you've heard this stat from me before, gives less than 3% of his or her uh, after-tax income to charity. And the Notre Dame sociologist Christian Smith wrote a fascinating book about, um, about Christian practices of generosity in a book called um, Passing the Plate. And he, in that book, he outlines the incredible economic power that would be unleashed um, if Christians tithed on their after-tax income. Basically, he outlined this whole list of global, uh, uh, global social problems and, and problems related to, to poverty in the world that could be seriously addressed, if not ameliorated, through Christian generosity. So we have laws of release. We have laws of tithing. And then there's a third set of biblical laws dealing with economic justice. And that, and that concerns gleaning. We don't see that in our passage, but these are very important. And so what gleaning meant is that you wouldn't harvest your entire crop, either of wheat or of grapes or, or of olives, but that you would leave the edge of your field untouched so that the poor could harvest some of it for themselves. And this wasn't a handout. This provided people who were poor and didn't have land with a means to provide for themselves. Gleaning is what Ruth does in the book of Ruth. When when she finds her husband dead and she's living with her mother-in-law, she goes to glean in the field to provide for herself and Naomi. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy. It says, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterwards. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. And so the Bible here, it's emphasizing human need over maximizing individual profit. Now, I don't know how this jibes with a principle like, you know, the, the, the fiduciary responsibility to the shareholder, but here it is. 
So we have laws of release, we have laws of tithing, we have laws of gleaning. And a fourth set of biblical laws concern the general welfare. In our passage, it says, If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. And so general welfare, it means then being open-handed to the poor, lending them what they need, and not worrying about if in the sixth year is coming up and, and, and that debt is going to be canceled. And so the entire concept of, of providing for the general welfare, for social welfare, it, it's not some, you know, liberal invention, but it's right here in God's Word. Now, that's not to say that every social welfare program is biblical, but it is to say that our society's idea that we should care for the poorest of the poor, regardless of whether they deserve it or not, is a part of our Judeo-Christian heritage. And finally, there's a fifth area of biblical laws concerning economic justice, and that is the concept of the year of jubilee. This occurred every 49 years, and it was called the Sabbath of Sabbaths. And in that year, not only were all debts canceled, as was supposed to happen every seven years, but all lands were returned to their ancestral owners. Our passage talks about the sabbatical year of release, and that occurs every seven years. All debts are canceled. But in the year of Jubilee, Jubilee families that had found themselves in poverty and had sold off their lands were to have those lands returned. It, it was kind of like a big reset button getting hit on all of the economy and society. And so in a world where, where land was wealth, this law in and of itself would, would, would mean that at least once in every couple of generations, and, and maybe in someone's lifetime, once in their lifetime, each and every person would get a chance to start over. And, and so it would mitigate against the transfer of generational wealth and growing inequality. In biblical law, each and every family had a once-in-a-lifetime, a once-in-a-generation opportunity to start over. And so when we take all of these laws together, all five of these areas together, and we consider them, you can understand why Moses would say that there will be no poor among you. If these laws were kept, and it's not clear actually that they ever were in, in, in the life of Israel, but if they were kept, it's not that people would make no poor financial decisions or circumstances wouldn't drive them or their family into poverty. It's that they would almost assuredly have eliminated a permanent long-term generational poverty. Now, speaking of poverty, that's what I want to go to next, what the Bible sees as the causes of poverty. Now, we've seen these, these five areas of biblical law about economic justice and how each of them are really concerned with eliminating poverty. Now, the Bible has a view of poverty that, that, that cuts against our kind of contemporary political uh, divides of the left and the right. And it actually has a fuller and much more complex and nuanced view of poverty's roots. I say that because if you're a conservative in America, you think about poverty and you go, yes, it, it's caused by, by personal failures or a lack of a work ethic or, or maybe a, a broken family or you grew up in, in, in a culture that, that gave you poor values when it came to, to work and employment and saving and financial decisions. And if you're a liberal person or a progressive person, you, you blame social structures and, and, and things like the legacy of racism or white supremacy, failing schools, an unfair criminal justice system, globalization, capitalism. Now, both of these perspectives get at part of the truth. 
That poverty is caused by things, you know, that are within our control and things that are outside of our control. And and Scripture is always thinking in these complicated terms, uh, like the temptation to sin. uh, Scripture is always divided in, in these three different categories, you know, the flesh, the world, and the devil, saying that those are the three forces that drive us to tempt us towards sin, the flesh being our own personal desires, the world being, you know, the broader systems and structures around us, and the devil being this spiritual agency that is dark and wants us to draw us away from God. So this is, should not be like a, a controversial set of, of, of assumptions to apply, to apply to something like poverty. It's, it's embedded within the Christian worldview itself. And so here's what Scripture sees as, as poverty's three root causes. The first is oppression. In fact, uh, one of the main Hebrew words for the poor means the oppressed, the person who has literally been beaten down. And so these are... are, are the systemic causes of poverty that we see in Scripture. A justice system that favors the rich over the poor because the rich can pay a bribe to get justice, well, the poor can't. Systemic injustice in the form of wages that are below subsistence or are paid after a long period of time, or an oppression in the forms of loans that come at an obscene interest, an unrepayable interest. All of these the Bible condemns as systemic causes of poverty and oppression. So, a corrupt justice system, uh, uh, corrupt labor practices, and, and a corrupt financial system, all of those Scripture identifies as, as a source of poverty. Now, another root cause of poverty in Scripture is calamity. We might call these the natural causes. These are famine, floods and fire, you know, war and illness, bad, uh, bad weather, bad luck, disease and disability. Think of Jacob's sons. There's a famine, they have to go down to Egypt they don't know they're going to their brother Joseph, but they have to go down to Egypt to try to get food. Think of the, the, the widow of Zarephath, who was poor because her husband died, and then there was a famine in the land, and she was out without sufficient oil and flour until Elijah came and raised her son from the dead. So these are the cases where poverty is certainly not the person's fault by any stretch of the imagination. Think of someone who lost their job because of the, the pandemic. And lastly, the Bible sees poverty as caused by personal failings. Proverbs is chock full of talk about the sluggard who becomes poor because he refuses to work and, or he's lazy or, or doesn't plan ahead, so has no foresight. And Keller says this, and I think it's so true. Poverty, therefore, is seen in the Bible as a very complex phenomenon. Several factors are usually intertwined. Poverty cannot be simply eliminated by personal initiative or by merely changing the tax structure. Multiple factors are usually present in the life of a poor family. Any large-scale improvement in a society's level of poverty will come through a comprehensive array of public and private, spiritual, personal, and corporate measures. All right, so, so far we've looked at, at the biblical laws concerning economic justice and the Bible's understanding of the complex and interrelated causes of poverty. And lastly, and this is very quickly, you know, quicker than I want to do, we're going to look at the theological foundations that must undergird our work for economic justice. Right? We need all of these things, all of these understandings to work together. Because if we don't keep these in mind, if we don't keep, if we don't stay rooted in our theological foundations, then it's going to be way too easy to to grow cynical, to grow angry, to grow hard-hearted, to get burnt out, or to make social justice itself an idol. 
that gets detached from anything related to our faith in Christ. But this work for economic justice, it's essential Christian work. In the book of Proverbs, it says, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. And so here, here, and I can only spend like 30 seconds on each of them, here are our six principles, six theological foundations for our work for justice. All kinds of justice, but particularly economic justice. The first principle is this. Nothing belongs to you. Everything belongs to God. You are an owner of your resources. You are a steward. So what that means is you're responsible to God as its proper owner for how you use it. You, you need to use what he has given you, how he wants you to use it. In 1 Chronicles 29, there's this beautiful prayer as, as all the resources are being dedicated to build the tabernacle and the temp, uh, to build the temple, actually. And they're getting ready, ready to gather all of these resources that they need to, to, to build, you know, a house for God. And David prays this beautiful prayer. And in that prayer, he acknowledges that everything that they're offering that day has already been given to them by God. And so they're actually just giving back to God what has already been loaned to them by him. So that's the first principle. We need to think of ourselves as stewards not owners. And so if you're really good at making a lot of money, which is awesome, and building a business or a company, which is awesome, that that is part of, of building a prosperous society for everyone. Remember, as you're doing that, you're a steward, not an owner. It belongs to God. Second principle, every single person from the richest to the poorest is made in the image and likeness of God. So Jeff Bezos the richest man on earth, or maybe he was till he got divorced. I can't remember if he's still the richest person in the world. But Jeff Bezos, Bezos or Bezos, whatever, potato, potato, and, 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 a, and a homeless, addicted person who is living in, in the encampment at Powderhorn Park. Each of those people are equal in God's eyes. Equally precious. Equally value of infinite value and worth. And so treat every person you meet as such. So that's principle number two. Every person is made in God's image and likeness. The third principle, don't forget the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says that. The question comes, who's my neighbor? How does Jesus answer that question? He tells a story about a Samaritan person who offers real practical economic health to someone who his, his ethnic religious other and not just his other, but actually his enemy. So principle number three, someone of a different race and religion than him. So principle number three, we have to love our neighbor who doesn't look like us. Fourth principle, corporate responsibility. See in our passage in Deuteronomy, that a lot of these commandments are undergirded with this statement by God. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Moses says, that's why you're responsible for economic justice, because you were a slave. You suffered under a system that had no justice for you. So don't forget that. But here's the thing, though. When Moses is speaking to this generation before they enter the promised land, none of them had actually been slaves. The entire wilderness generation had died off at this point. Yet Moses says, what God did for your ancestors, what your ancestors experienced, also is your experience as well. Cain asks, am I my brother's keeper? Now, Matt preached on this passage a couple weeks ago, and the answer is yes. 
And so we can never buy into an extremist understanding of personal responsibility as an excuse for not caring for the poor and needy because it's their fault, their problem. Principle four is we are our brothers and our sisters' keeper. Principle five, God identifies with the poor with the quartet of the oppressed, as I preached about a few weeks ago. And so I've already spoken on that, but we don't just see that in the Old Testament. Turn to the New Testament, Matthew 25. Jesus is talking about the final judgment, sheep and goats. You know, this is real stuff. And he says that whatever is done for the least of these has been done to him. So principle five, God identifies with the least, the lost, the left out, and the left behind. And finally, 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 and this is the most important principle of all, principle number six, economic justice is about the gospel. The good news of free grace given to all who trust in Jesus Christ. And so everything that the biblical laws of economic justice point us to, they find their fulfillment in Jesus. He releases us from our infinite debt of sin. His last words on the cross in John are, it is finished, which in the Greek means the debt is paid, paid in full. And Jesus' death and resurrection, they, they usher in the kingdom of God, which is the jubilee of jubilees of jubilees, where we are fully, finally, and completely free. And not just us, but all of creation is released from its bondage to decay, as Paul talks about. And at the heart of the gospel is the truth that Jesus left the the, the infinite riches, splendor, and glory of heaven to take on the form of a human being. (laughs) And even worse than that, in Philippians, Paul says that Christ took on the form of a slave in order to set us free. And though he was rich beyond imagination, comprehension, or measure, he became poor in order to make us rich beyond our wildest dreams. And all of this is available to us for free because it cost Jesus everything. In 1 John, it says, What great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And so the Christian message of economic justice is just another way of sharing the gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Please pray with me. Lord God, we thank you for the freedom that you grant us, for the riches that you give us, and for the work that you call us to. And Lord, might not we ever forget your word. Might we never grow tired or hard-hearted or cynical of hearing of your heart for the poor. And Lord God, might we go out and share that good news of forgiveness, that there is a year of jubilee and eternity of jubilee coming. And might we order our, our, our lives and the common good in such a way that we could see the fulfillment and approximation of the fulfillment of Moses' promise that there will be no poor in the land. We thank you for that beautiful vision that you give us in your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.